Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 130, Prelude. First, as always, thanks to our new patrons. So, we've got a new patron, Alexander Tashev, and a big thanks to Athanas Manjukov for his generous donation. So, as always, consider pledging if you can. If you can't, totally understandable, but you do get some cool rewards. And, you know, I guess a small announcement. I'm now looking at probably self-publishing my book, uh, this book on the First uh, Bulgarian Empire, and think probably there'll be some uh, special copies of the book and things for some of my patrons. So, you know, that's still a long way from being finalized, uh, months, if not a year or so. But I'm hoping to do something special for you all to say thank you. So look forward to that. Now, let's get into it. Last time, we saw the BRCC attempt to move on and in solving its kind of internal divisions and preparing for an uprising. But the arrest of 22 of its members after a failed assassination attempt in Hraskovo put more pressure on them. Now the Ottomans have more information than ever on the BRCC, its members, its activities, and its future plans. Meanwhile, a major financial panic and resulting economic depression swept across the world, causing great misery in Bulgaria as city dwellers went hungry and farmers found themselves destitute. Lastly, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Russia formed the Three Emperors League, but this new alliance hid dramatically different visions for the future of the Balkans. Now we'll begin in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I want to start by quoting Jelovic for some context. They wrote, quote, Bosnia, at least during the first part of the century, stood stubbornly for maintaining old ways and against reform. It will be remembered that Bosnia was one of the few areas in which there were mass conversions to Islam after the Ottoman conquest. The notables of the area, known as Begs, were thus Muslim and Slavic. They fought stubbornly at this time to maintain their authority both against Constantinople and over their Christian peasants. Despite the fact that both beg and peasant were of the same nationality, the conditions of the peasant in Bosnia and Herzegovina was one of the worst in the Balkans. Both the tax levels and the corvée duties were exorbitant. It has been estimated that they absorbed over 40% of the peasant's income. Ottoman reforms were also not enforced here. End quote. So, just to give you an idea of how, how bad things are in Bosnia and the extent to which they're really kind of getting the best of both worlds. You imagine that tax rate today, you know, 40% is what you might get in maybe some Scandinavian countries. It's a fairly high tax rate, but there you get a lot for that, right? You get all kinds of social protections, usually healthcare, da-da-da. These folks are paying 40% and getting effectively nothing, so they're going to be pretty angry. So, now it's late 1874, and the stage is set, and kind of the state of Bosnia is starting to fester, is starting to get upset. You know, people are more and more aware of essentially how bad their situation is and more and more upset at the Ottoman government and the Begs for exacerbating that. Now, I mentioned Bosnia had just experienced a harsh winter. Bulgaria had too. They're pretty close, so all the same. And that had, just like in Bulgaria, brought additional crop failures. 
Now, tax farmers were being even more brutal than in a typical year, and the population was really feeling the effects. In response, many peasants fled into the mountains to begin armed resistance, allowing Ottoman irregulars to pillage villages in lieu of the taxes they could no longer collect because all the peasants were gone. In some cases, these were Muslim villagers fleeing Orthodox tax collectors, but in other cases, these were ethnic Serbs who had been encouraged by Serbia and other outside powers to kind of begin a greater resistance against the Ottomans with, for some, the aim of joining a greater Serbia. But again, I do mention those kind of, you know, ethnic issues because, you know, it's, it's easy to look at the entire Ottoman Empire and look at uh, the Balkans as, you know, Muslims oppressing, oppressing Christians, but it was very more, much more complicated than that. And in this case, again, you could easily have ethnic Orthodox tax collectors and Muslim villagers, as well as Muslim tax collectors and Orthodox villagers. It got very complicated. Now, at the same time all this is happening, the Austro-Hungarians began to closely monitor the situation as, well, particularly the Austrian side of uh, that alliance, was very interested in taking advantage of any violence in order to annex the territory. Remember, Hungary did not want more Slavs in the empire because they thought it would upset the kind of ethnic balance, which gave them a lot of privileges, so they were quite against it. Now, Count Ignatiev, who uh, I feel like I shouldn't need to introduce who he is, but remember the, the kind of Russian ambassador in Constantinople was attempting to push Russia towards involvement in the escalating violence. Now, Serbia and Montenegro came to an agreement to get involved, with the plan being that they would fight the Ottomans and in exchange, Serbia would annex Bosnia while Montenegro would annex Herzegovina. Now, all this pressure built until June 1875 when an ambush on a convoy, some sources say military, others civilian, really kicked off the Herzegovinian uprising. Catholic Croats hoped for Austrian intervention while Orthodox Serbs hoped Serbian, Serbia and Montenegro would help them. Again, there was some aid coming mostly from Montenegro. We'll talk about Serbia in a second. And no surprise then, the Muslim population was really caught in the middle with Muslim elites fighting to preserve the status quo and, well, everyday Muslim peasants really just getting the worst of all of it. Misha Gleni wrote of the Muslim peasants in Bosnia and Herzegovina that they, quote, suffered conditions almost as miserable as those under which the Serbs labored while the wealth of the landowners was being steadily drained by the government in Istanbul, desperate to feed its debt. Even the tax farmers themselves were beginning to moan that life was becoming unbearable for them, end quote. So, you really could get a feel for how bad things are in Bosnia at this point that even the tax farmers are feeling like, you know, guys, it's really getting bad. It's, it's tough for us to make a living anymore. Now, in August of 1875, a Serbian election saw the liberals who wanted to help the insurgents across the border win a clear victory. However, Prince Milan opposed this and decided to denounce the uprising. So, You've got this split between essentially what the population of Serbia wants and what their prince wants. Now, all this created, unsurprisingly, an opening for the rival Serbian dynasty, the Karadjordjevic line. The young heir to that line, Petar, had been fighting with the French Foreign Legion while in exile. And, well, he saw his opportunity and returned in August under a pseudonym to lead a group of 200 fighters in Bosnia. But after learning that, Prince Milan tried to have him assassinated. After this attempted assassination, I, mean, I don't know if there was a specific event, but he knew he, his life was in danger. And essentially, after Petr lost several battles, he had to eventually retreat into Austria-Hungary, where he was detained. Now, 
at this point, we'll leave the Bosnian and Herzegovinian uprisings. Um, but just know that with the end of 1875, those uprisings are still happening, but, well, they're, they're not going that well. Still, it's worth pointing out that these were fairly mass uprisings and not so easily put down like all the recent Bulgarian uprisings, right? You know, at the end of 1875, it's been, you know, about six months and the uprisings are still happening despite losses. Now let's turn to what was happening with the BRCC in those early months of 1875. Now, on the 15th of January, Lubin Karavelov published the first issue of his magazine, Knowledge, in Bucharest. Its educational kind of and science focus uh, gave basically another reason for him to be attacked by Christo Botev. Again, the two of them had a you know growing and more and more serious kind of rift between them. R.J. Crampton described it saying that, quote, Karavelov and the left-wing Botev simply could not cooperate. In other words, Botev advocated well, kind of get an idea of where their fight came, Botev wanted immediate revolution, while Karavelov wanted more gradual preparation. That was kind of the heart of it. But overall, despite this, the BRCC was still focused on preparing for a major uprising. But those plans began hitting more and more snags. On the 27th of January 1875, the Romanian Minister of Internal Affairs was informed that during a check in Gheorghiu, which is again across the river from Ruse, that Romanian officials found a trunk of revolvers along with ammunition heading towards Bulgaria. Upon further investigation, they discovered that this package was connected to both Karavelv and Botev, triggering a court case against them. In court, Botev actually represented Karavelv, again despite their arguments, and later Botev said that Karavelv basically got scared and wanted Botev to take all the blame, and so although it seems like they kind of came together to defend themselves, ultimately this really hurt their relationship, uh, and further divisions within the BRCC. But I couldn't find a lot of details of the results of this court case, but it seems like it was fine and they kind of got off because both of them continued doing what they were doing before. Now, on the other side of that little scandal, those transporting the weapons revealed to the authorities that they belonged to a man named Stefan Stambolov. Now, at this point, I want to introduce this character because Stambolov is going to become quite important in our story, and we deserve to get to know him a little bit. At this point, he's a 21-year-old from Turnovo who had spent the first years of the decade studying at a seminary in Odessa. Stambolov was interested in the BRCC's activities and briefly tried to take Levski's place following his death, but, well, found the role to be a bit beyond his abilities, so he returned to his studies for the time being. However, in 1874, an informant revealed a circle of revolutionaries in that seminary to the Russian authorities, leading the Russians in the circle to be sent to Siberia while all the Bulgarians, including uh, Stumbolov, were exiled. So now fate thrusted Stumbolov into the role of being a full-time revolutionary with the BRCC because, well, there wasn't much else for him to do. In Bucharest, he became quite close with Botev, Although he didn't seem to take on any of Botev's socialist beliefs, it would seem the two would be from very different areas, you know, one coming out of a seminary, the other one being kind of an avowed socialist. But, well, the two basically both believed in immediate revolution, so that brought them together. They even actually collaborated on some poetry, like, well, these lines quoted in Duncan M. Perry's very nice biography of Stefan Stambolov. Together they wrote, Hey, enslaved people, why do you sleep? Or perhaps the free life is not dear to you. The time is coming, the hour is approaching, to smash the yoke. Let's go, let's go, let's go. We are heading to the fray. Enough, enough of everything. 
in Romania, we stand ready. So, you know, kind of uh, stirring revolutionary poetry there. And, well, Stambulov was sent to Bulgaria by the BRCC, where he briefly was a teacher in Turnoval while secretly conducting revolutionary business at night, but he was kind of discovered and fired. He then traveled around Bulgaria, conducting more BRCC work and attending several general meetings in 1874, which we've already discussed. He also at one point met with Exarch Antim I to essentially ask that his priests at least not hinder the BRC's, BRCC's activities, but Antim made no promises about this. He was a bit cagey in his answer. Now, frankly, this is no doubt a worrying sign that even the Bulgarian exarchate was unwilling to really devote itself to the BRCC's cause, or even devote itself to not interfere in it. So we'll see how that plays out. Now, back to those, those weapons that were crossing the Danube. Stumbleoff was now wanted by the Ottoman authorities and had to spend the early months of 1875 traveling in disguise. Eventually, he obtained a fake passport in Starozagora and traveled to Constantinople to establish a BRCC cell there. But the authorities quickly discovered who he was, and, well, he had to go into hiding there as well. He soon met with another man who will become important in the longer run in our story, Dragan Tsankov, who was working for the Ottoman government as a press censor. Now, Tsankov was sympathetic to the BRCC and advised Stumbleoff to leave the city for his own safety. To do this, Stumbleoff met with our old friend Count Ignatiev, who gave him a Russian passport and sent him off with these words, quote, Russia can do nothing for Bulgaria now if the Bulgarians alone do not provide grounds for it, End quote. Now, these words would stick with Stumbleoff for the rest of his life, and he would often quote them in his arguments for how the revolution should be conducted. So, in other words, what Ignatiev is saying is that you know, the Bulgarians need to do their part. They need to set the groundwork. They need to establish the right circumstances in which Russia can help them and that they can't simply rely on Russian help. So this is obviously, you know, leaning more towards those in the BRCC who have long advocated for focusing on getting things done themselves and not focusing on relying on outside help. But frankly, the BRCC is long past that debate and has gone on to this new division, again, focus around how quickly they should lead a rebellion. Now, with this new passport, Stumbleoff's ship headed for Odessa, and from there, he returned to Bucharest. Now, during the spring, while Stumbleoff was traveling, his close friend and associate, Ivan Panov Semergiev, had been selected as an apostle on Stumbleoff's recommendation. When a BRCC meeting was held in Turnovo in May, Semergiev actually ran it. Now, all this kind of brings us to June 1875, when the BRCC was still working out its internal divisions and gradually preparing for revolution. But as we know at this moment, that revolt erupted in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Stumbleoff and Botev both saw this as their moment, arguing fervently that the BRCC had to strike while the iron was hot. In particular, they argued that these events would draw European attention to the Balkans and thereby strengthen their cause. Botev even argued that to again quote Duncan M. Perry, quote, the people of Bulgaria were ever in readiness for a revolt, and thus careful preparations were not necessary, end quote. So that really gives you an idea of like how, how different the, these perceptions were, both of saying, we don't even need careful preparation. The Bulgarian people are always ready. Whereas Karavelf is, I'm sure, saying, eh, nah, experience has shown that is not quite the case. Let's, let's hold back a little. So again, Obviously, Karavelf argued against this, but 
This essentially forced Stumbleoff and Botev to circulate an, a letter arguing that Karavelf should be replaced as the head of the BRCC by Paniot Hitov. And it was around this point that Karavelov effectively accepted defeat and stepped down from his position. Now in mid-August, another BRCC meeting was held in Bucharest, which formed the Bulgarian Revolutionary Committee, a smaller organization tasked with preparing a national uprising in Bulgaria as soon as possible. The new committee contained Botev, Dragov, Dragoy Shopov, Dmitry Tsenovich, and Hristo Jubanov. Now, by the end of the month, Stumbleoff was crossing back into Bulgaria on his way to Starozgora to take over preparations for the uprising there, but he immediately had to go into hiding because, well, the Ottoman authorities were informed of his planned arrival and put a very substantial thousand lira bounty on his head. When a fellow revolutionary found him in hiding, Stumbleoff was described this way, quote, The future leader of the uprising sat in a small, smelly room without a candle and without a bed. In one hand, he held a revolver for any eventuality, and a small chair was piled high with writing things, including a priest's inkhorn, a few pieces of white paper, a map of the Balkan Peninsula, a telescope, and a compass. His feet were swollen and wrapped in bandages because of walking too much. End quote. So Stambulos, in a, he's in a difficult spot here. He's, he's not very comfortable, but he is obviously still very determined in his goal. I mean, he's 21 years old. He's got that fiery passion and belief in himself that uh, you know many of us have in our early 20s. Now, after spending some time in this uh, small room, kind of writing letters and doing what he can while still in hiding, Stambulov completed his journey to Starozagora and eagerly wrote back to the Central Committee in Bucharest, informing them that the people there were eager for a fight. He also incorrectly believed that the revolt in Bosnia was still going strong. Now, while that revolt will continue for two more years, the worst of it was already over by this point. And that Serbia was imminently going to declare war on the Ottomans, Remember, Prince Milan is ardently fighting the Parliament's desire to do so, and the, with the Bosnian revolt kind of winding down, the possibility of Serbia declaring war is also winding down with it. Even Ignatiev in Constantinople was at this point warning the BRCC, sending a telegram to the Russian general consul in Bucharest, stating his opposition to the Bulgarian revolt that he knew was coming, writing, quote, Explain to the Bulgarians the unreasonableness and the damage of the attempts doomed to fail. The conditions are not favorable now. Let them save their means and blood for a different minute. End quote. But the 21-year-old Stumbleoff fervently believed that this revolt was going to succeed and he wasn't letting anyone basically stop it. Soon, word came from Bucharest that the uprising would begin on the 16th of September. On that day, around 20 people, headed by Georgi Ikonolov and Stefan Stumbleoff, announced the uprising in Starozagora. They gathered around the so-called Umbrella Hill outside town and waited for other rebels from surrounding villages to join them. However, none did. It was just those 20 people. And so they formed a cheta and headed towards Hainito, which is today Gorkovo. Now, Stambulov had estimated that around 300 men would join him instead of the 20, and to be fair, around 50 men did come to that spot after he had already left, but well, not finding anyone there, they quickly dispersed. Now, Stambulov's main cheta basically dispersed itself around Hainito because, well, they didn't really have much they could do with 20 people. And around that same time, other cheti were being formed and other revolutionaries were, well, meeting their fate. 
Two days after the beginning of the uprising, two of those original members who met on Umbrella Hill, Mikhail and Georgi Zhekovi, died in a barn after being caught there by Ottoman forces. Now, at the same time, another cheta was formed in Schumann, headed by Atanas Stoiko, and started towards the village of Verbitza and onwards to Kotel. But along the way, they learned that the uprising had already been a failure and they dispersed. A few days later, in the region of Cervenevoda, around Ruse, a cheta of 17 people formed, headed by Verban Yordanov, and they headed towards Gorna Oryachovica and to Turnovo, but they also just disbanded within about three days. So, Overall, this whole thing was over within less than a week, and although between all the areas, particularly around Starozagora, hundreds of people participated, it's estimated around 800 people did form to fight around Starozagora, and several battles were fought there with the Ottomans, but the revolt as a whole, again, lasted just a few days. Stambolov was devastated. One of the participants in the uprising wrote that Stambolov said, quote, When a people does not want freedom, must you force it upon them? Lies, boasts, hollow promises, and nothing more. Go, wander the wilderness like ham's seed. When Stumbleoff left for Turnovo, he found that the town wasn't even aware that the uprising had taken place, further twisting the knife of defeat. Soon, Stumbleoff was back in Romania to lick his wounds. Now, the failed Starozagora uprising led to around 600 arrests and the resulting Ottoman crackdown. But on a nicer note, around the same time, the Ottomans did lower the 10% tax, kind of officially, to 7.5% and forgave some shortfalls in tax payments from the period of 1872 to 73 in the hope that this would help prevent further revolts. Now, Christo Botev, in light of this failure, filed for his resignation from the BRCC. And on the 1st of October, about only two weeks after the uprising had even begun, a common assembly of the BRCC in Bucharest debated the causes of the failure. They came to the conclusion that the failure really came down to a lack of voivody, but, well, it seems a lot more was going on. Still, Filip Totio and Stefan Stambolov were tasked with preparing more cheti which would enter Bulgaria, and if they had the support of the people, they were going to announce yet another rebellion. But, things were moving elsewhere. Now, in November, a well, so-called, they, they call themselves the Assembly of the Apostles, uh, was held in Gheorghiu, again, the town across the Danube River from Ruse. But it's better known as the Gheorghiu Revolutionary Committee. Now, this new group deliberately isolated a lot of BRCC members, including Botev, who, again, despite his support for Stambolf and the Zagora uprising, was now kind of a persona non grata. Uh, he was too associated with the failure, although somehow Stambolf, despite leading it, was not. So this new committee was around 15 to 17 people, including Stambolov, uh, Nikola Opretenov, Tuyan Zaimov, Paniot Volov, Georgi Benkovsky, and others. Now, they lived in kind of a communal space and they well, worked intensely to plan. Now, all of them agreed unanimously that a new rebellion should occur the following spring, the spring of 1876. Their full attention was turned towards preparing for this rebellion. Their meetings continued for more than a month, after which the appointed apostles departed for their regions of Bulgaria, which had been divided into five revolutionary districts, Turnovo, Sliven, Vratza, Plovdiv, and Sofia. Each had one apostle and two assistant apostles. And in the preparation for the rebellion, though, only the first four regions were functional. Essentially, Ottoman forces in Sofia, which was the capital of the region, were just too strong, and so they kind of abandoned that one. 
Shelters were going to be established for Bulgarians so women and children could seek safety, while the general plan was to attack the rail line from Adrianople to Belovo and to destroy it, as well as to attack towns like Adrianople, Plovdiv, Pazajik, and others, particularly Muslim villages. Now, these attacks were designed to distract Ottoman authorities, and all the while, the Bulgarians would spread rumors that Russia and Serbia were imminently going to intervene. Hopefully, that would also do some damage. Now, that kind of finishes the activities of the BRCC for 1875, but there are a few other major events which occurred later in the year that we need to talk about before we wrap up. On the 30th of October, with that economic crisis we've talked about last time hitting harder than ever, and as we know, efforts to raise more taxes really only leading to more revolts, the Ottoman government finally defaulted on all of its debt. Now, to give you an idea, by this point, debt payments alone made up 43.9% of the empire's finances. So almost half of all the money the empire is taking in is going just to paying towards those debts, and as you can imagine, not a lot of that is going to principal. Another contributing factor to this debt was the explosive growth of the Ottoman navy, which you probably have a general awareness that navies are very expensive. And by this point, the Ottoman navy was the third largest in the world. Only the British and French navies were larger. So they'd really been doing some spending. But with this default, well, things were not looking so good. And the failure that this default represented provided some wind in the sails of the empire's reformers. And a month after the default, the Ottoman government issued a firman announcing a new tax system, proclaiming, again, the equality of all subjects within the empire, and lowering taxes as a part of this. Now, the purpose of this was to demonstrate to the great powers that the Ottomans were still dedicated to implementing reforms. And this did seem to show that, you know, the Tanzimat was not completely dead. But, well, how this actually plays out in practice, we'll have to see because, well, we've seen many times that the Ottomans will announce all these new plans and reforms and things, but especially as we talked about in places like Bosnia, these reforms basically never change anything on the ground. And so with that, we'll close out this episode in the year 1875. The Starosagora uprising was a dismal failure, but its main planners have now formed a new committee and are more determined than ever to try again. Alongside this, the BRCC is now more fractured than ever. And, well, basically, planning has been transferred to this new Georgiou Revolutionary Committee. Karavelf and Botev have both been pushed out, and Stefan Stambolov has effectively taken over the leadership of planning the revolution. As the winter of 1875 turns into 1876, Stambolov and his followers are working furiously to prepare for an uprising which is set to occur in April of that year, just a few months away. Elsewhere, the Ottoman government is facing renewed crisis as it defaults on its debt, and, well, it's facing more revolts than ever. Reformers see this as their moment to return to the Tanzimat, but we'll see how this plays out. Next time, we'll see the most famous uprising in Bulgarian history set off a chain of momentous events, which will change Bulgarian history forever and bring this season of the podcast to a close. In other words, you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast on pause for now, but still you can catch the first few episodes at bghistorypodcast.com. And you can also check out the well, podcast page for this, which has some cool maps, some images, and that's all linked in the episode description. You can also check out the subreddit if you want to ask some questions or start a conversation. And well, 
Catch you all in the next one.